Bogdanovich has claimed that the early months of 1980 were the happiest time of his life. He was in emphatic, unequivocal love with Playboy model Dorothy Stratton, and she was equally in love with him. Their blissful romance led to Bogdanovich dreaming up his next film, They All Laughed. Weaving together his affections for Stratton, the ongoing dissolution of her current marriage, and the recent affair shared by stars Ben Gazzara and Audrey Hepburn on their previous film together, Bogdanovich penned the most sincere expression of love he could and set it against the swooning backdrop of New York City in the spring. Watching the film, it's evident the director was floating on cloud nine during its production, which only makes the dark aftermath of its construction all the more tragic. On August 13th, 1980, Dorothy Stratton was murdered by her estranged husband during a meeting about their divorce at his rented home in Los Angeles, before then taking his own life with the same gun shortly thereafter. Upon hearing the news, Bogdanovich's life instantly fell apart, with many years of distraught grief and exceedingly poor life choices to follow. Just as his life and career were reaching a concurrent high, everything came crashing down. No studio was willing to touch They All Laughed in the wake of Stratton's death, and so Bogdanovich dug himself into debt buying the rights to the film and attempting to distribute it himself. Unsurprisingly, this did not go well. The film desperately floundered at the box office, and Bogdanovich was forced to declare bankruptcy. The failure of They All Laughed, alongside a number of other auteur-driven flops at the same time, proved to be the final nail in the coffin of the new Hollywood renaissance of director-driven studio productions. Fortunately, the film has regained some traction thanks to a new generation of Hollywood auteurs, with the likes of Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson championing it as a masterwork in recent decades. Another hiatus followed suit, but by 1985, Bogdanovich was back at it, both because he needed to pick up the pieces and because he needed the money. When they were together, Dorothy expressed particular interest in the story of Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. Bogdanovich pieced together her identification with him as an object of public attention, subjected both for their extreme looks, one radiant, the other malformed. This is what inspired Bogdanovich to make Mask, a biographical story of the similarly stricken Rocky Dennis and his struggle to live a normal life with a debilitating facial deformity. Mask was one of Bogdanovich's most successful films to date, being a big hit with both audiences and critics, as well as snagging some much-deserved awards for leading actress Cher at Cannes, as well as an Academy Award for the incredible makeup effects used to believably transform Eric Stoltz into the afflicted young boy. Still strapped for cash, seriously, do not try to self-distribute your own movies, Bogdanovich was still operating as a director for hire. He found himself under the auspices of the rather notorious Dino De Laurentiis, whom Bogdanovich would later blame for the unmitigated failure of Illegally Yours. With a title tipping its name to a Preston Sturgis classic, Bogdanovich was set to make a contemporary screwball comedy for the 80s in the same way he did in 1973 with What's Up Doc. The commercial appeal of leading man Rob Lowe seemed to be a sure hit, but a forced rewrite of the script and a hacked up editing job seems to have ruined the picture's chances for success and caused Bogdanovich enough grief to proclaim it as the worst film he ever made. In 1987, author Larry McMurtry penned a follow-up novel to the beloved The Last Picture Show. Bogdanovich was then naturally in talks to direct the film adaptation of the story set some 30 years after the captivating narrative he first brought to theaters 16 years before. Texasville reunited most of the original cast, including Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepard, 
who began as mere aspirants in Picture Show, but were now bona fide stars. The story swaps its deconstruction of youthful angst for the mature interest of middle-aged malaise, investigating how the reverberations of the past reflect upon and impact the present. But without the same haunting cinematography and sense of place, not to mention the confidence of the studio behind him, Bogdanovich's film faltered yet again at the box office. It was a sad reminder of how the young protege of Orson Welles, whose second feature was once heralded alongside the mighty Citizen Kane, had, much like the great director himself, fallen from the public's graces. No longer did his name command the same capital as once before, having only further ruined his reputation by constantly fighting with the studios in a vain attempt to regain his creative integrity. Welcome back to The Twin Geeks 150. Uh, so rare for podcasts to get to 150 episodes. We're proud of the work we've done. Sometimes uh, we may feel like it's uh, less episodes, and uh, sometimes we may feel like we've doubled down and done two episodes in one. Um, welcome back, David. We uh, just recorded this episode, lost two hours of content, and we're back again with the, the last podcast show, um, Peter Pod Donovich. Uh, he has some great names for the show. I don't know why he didn't come up with them. We came up with Change of the Guard instead, which works. But Peter Pod Donovich, you know, he had a blog uh, once. Peter Blogdonovich? He just called it Blogdonovich. And oh, that that's was pretty, so good. Yeah, yeah, so good, right? But yes, uh, as you alluded to, uh, we have had this conversation already. Uh, surprise. Uh, we're mostly performing when we're doing podcasts. We're. Uh, method actors um i like to uh, really get into my material so i i believe it'll be about the same results more polished more theatrical flourish this time yeah i'm, I'm hoping it's uh, just as good of a conversation despite already knowing what each other thinks but man that last show we just did was the best show we ever did it's it's pretty great i mean it really it was and it's a shame that the you know <laughs> listeners out there won't get to hear it uh it was actually a real tearjerker you know as well I th- we I both think, cried uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it got really emotional at certain points. Uh, and I think we really reached some new profound conclusions about uh, this period of, of Bogdanovich's films uh, that I don't know that uh, a second uh, run through will, will be able to muster in the same way. So um, unobtainable. Uh, we'll see how far <laughs> up we could get. Um, they all podcasted. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> they all laughed first. Uh, did you laugh, David? I did, I did a bit, but mostly I, I, I swooned. I guess uh, it's a very romantic film. They all laughed. Um, very heartfelt, very uh, expressive, uh, and one I hope you liked just as well. Calvin, did you like They All Laughed? I was um, endeared by it, and I was confused the first time watching it. Much like this podcast, I watched it twice <laughs> in preparation. This has been a hell of a preparation. I've had. Yeah, sure has. So I watched half of it once, and that's. Like around when the film starts, I realized the second time is when I uh, kind of jetted off the first time. So uh, lots of obligations. My wife had her birthday this week. Ezra's been busy. There's, uh, you know, 
had to record multiple podcasts, including some of the same exact ones. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Exactly. I got it. Uh, I, I do feel charmed by it. I couldn't find the movie at first. I, I couldn't find it quite the second time either, but around the second half, I, I, I did laugh, indeed. Uh, I think uh, it, it makes a really interesting pairing with St. Jack, which was the film he made right before this one. And uh, both films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both films uh, indicate this same kind of uh, direction, this new style that uh, Bogdanovich was kind of carving out for himself. The, these very uh, fluid, almost kind of, you know, uh, films that, uh, you know, don't worry as much about narrative or characters or, or you know, developments like that. And really, you know, float by on this this ambience of fe- or feeling. Uh, in the case of Saint Jack, it's it's very like like charismatic and and kind of you know uh, almost like a like a journey, just kind of running around. It feels very nonstop. Whereas they all laughed has this very affectionate and genuine sense of love and this feeling uh, of the emotion, the way in which it uh, characterizes you know the various you know manners manifestations of romance and love and affection be it between you know married couples or you know uh just kind of new you know feelings or even affairs uh or even the way you see it manifest between you know like like uh father and his daughters you get the nice little scene between uh gazara and the two kids that play his daughters played by bogdanovich's actual kids uh which is just one example of the one of the many ways that bogdanovich you know weaves in real life you know relationships into all of this here as the intro kind of indicated there you know much of the script of they all laughed is informed by actual real life romances the one between ben gazara and audrey hepburn but also the one between him and dorothy stratton who's in the film uh as one of the characters and bogdanovich cast john ritter as kind of a you know analog of himself very very obviously uh mm-hmm. you know developing a romance for her and uh what what I really like about the film, what I connect with it even more than something like St. Jack, is the very genuine sense of, of uh, love that comes across in this aim to depict the, the expression and the feeling of love in a way that uh, really you, you can only try and aim for in cinema. Those two do make a good pairing, and uh, they are uh, unique in their own ways among the filmography. Um yeah, I, I could buy into your feeling about uh, love being played out on screen in a way that parallels these real life stories. I think that's part of why it was critiqued. And uh, when that pushback to Bogdanovich was happening, uh, that was a very, uh, you know, that was something they could push back on even further. But uh, it was also it's, tragic. And There's a real irony about the film as well, and that it's this very sincere, heartfelt, loving film. And the air of darkness uh, that it came out in is just entirely antithetical to what the film is about. It's yeah. it's entirely different to the sentiment that you kind of have bring into it. There, there was definitely some trepidation going in watching it, I felt, just knowing that I'm like, okay, this is the film that Dorothy Stratton's in. You know, how am I going to feel about her? How am I going <laughs> to, you know, take all of this in and go? And and watching it, uh, I, I think the film is is pretty miraculous in terms of the way it manages to not allow you to think about that it's it doesn't feel like about that at all despite the fact that and and i can only imagine how hard it was for bogdanovich to edit the film because he edited it like right afterwards like this is what he threw himself into in order to to get out of the grief yeah you could you could feel him processing it and how personal the film became to him um 
I find it hard to follow and find the movie, but um, I see why you love it. And uh, oh, okay, and, and again, I will continue as I did before as well to bring back the comparison to Saint Jack because that is also a film that is impossible to follow, but that I really liked. Yeah, um, yeah. we could see and, the uh, PTA parallels again. We could look at um, both Inherent Vice for Saint Jack and maybe Licorice Pizza for this one. Um, yeah. Oh, this is a film I think. PT is a fan of as well. I know there are a I number of directors it. who are like the film has only really regained its reputation in recent decades because of people like Quentin Tarantino and, and Wes Anderson, you know, who discovered the film when it came out, who saw it in the handful of theaters it played in when it played and really loved it. And they really connected with it. And so they've, you know, come back to uh, Peter. There, there was uh, a particular note that Tarantino had that I saw in an interview from a documentary about the film called One Day Since Yesterday, which is uh, basically a, a profile of Bogdanovich in his life and career, both leading up to and after They All Laughed, but predominantly focused on They All Laughed. But Tarantino had a nice anecdote in saying that how it was it was a film that he was afraid that, that he uh, let, like wore out, so to speak. And, and I like hearing that sentiment from him about this idea of there, you know, how you can watch a film too much and then you kind of waste away all its magic but then there are some films you can get back eventually mm -hmm. as a film that will come back to you and, and you can get back you know get back into again even after you've taken you know and, and just watched it too much so to speak and sure. and uh he was happy to relay that that they all laughed was a film that was able to come back to him many years later and bogdanovich kind of echoed that and was happy to hear that and you know express the sentiment that oh you know there's films that i've lost as well over time and and i liked hearing that from people who are you know as you know much of aficionados as anyone else in terms of also them making the films and that they also share in that universal experience of you know watching a film too many times so that no you can no longer enjoy it yeah um you could see how hard it must have been to self-distribute a movie as you say, never do it. Never self-distribute your own podcast, <laughs> yeah, let alone your film. Big, big regret for Bogdanovich. Definitely something he... But also, like, it's it's also an understandable thing that he would make in the kind of fog of grief at the time. Just, like, that he wanted to preserve this, you know, for the sake of Dorothy, but also for the integrity of his own film here. You know, he just came off of a series of films like where he was making compromises and he finally got his footing again with St. Jack made something that was entirely his. He refused to capitulate. I don't think I brought this up last week, but like the studios didn't want Gazara at first. They wanted mm -hmm. him to make it with like Paul Newman, which would have been, been interesting. Cool. Yeah. 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 But also at the same time, I love Gazara, you know, like, so yeah. how can I, how can I not have that version? But it, it it's a role that does seem like suited for Newman. So I can see why the studios went for that, but glad that Bogdanovich stuck by his vision and made the film he wanted to ultimately as well. And so of course he wanted to continue that with, with they all laughed. And so he, he worked overtime and there are some people who are willing to help him make it work. Uh, there's a nice story he tells about Sinatra selling him the rights to the four songs that or that he uses in the film from Sinatra that he just mostly did for $5,000 in total, which is basically nothing yeah. for music rights. And <laughs> Bogdanich was very, very grateful for that. And so that's, an, uh, you know, how much of a hard time he really did have putting the film together and then trying to put it out. And also just how... Uh, a lot of things that comes up, especially in these other films here that we'll discuss, is that there are some cases where just 
the studio's lack of confidence or the this interest in distributing something will kill a movie more than the the movie itself will. And that was even the case with some of his other films, like At Long Last Love was a film that was just not marketed right and then tested poorly and then, you know, pressured to cut badly. And so some of that happened with They All Laughed as well. He kept his directorial vision. He kept it and made it the movie it was. It was always the vision he wanted. Uh, but then just keeping it alive afterwards was, you know, it's it hard. It's difficult. Yeah. And again, is the case with a lot of his movies there thereafter, as you kind of see, this is where the Bogdanovich story tends to taper off. Um, you know, we get to the, the apex here of the most dramatic moment in his life with Dorothy Stratton being murdered and his film, you know, f failing. Uh, and then people don't talk too much about the rest of the movies. <laughs> Which I think this is kind of like the curse in the filmography where the um, studios are able to have more of a say again. Um, maybe once he's proved and tried to self-distribute and failed, then uh, well, maybe he doesn't get that that voice he had the last, uh, and last this, few shows yeah, we've done. And as I said as well in the intro, this is kind of like where people kind of mark the end of the new Hollywood era. Like the mm. failure of this and like Heaven's Gate the year before and stuff just being these big failures, both like, like creatively and financially. It, it, it really like burst the bubble and the, the myth of these these auteur driven studio films and, and then allowed... the studios start wrestling the control yeah. back of course yeah yeah so this is this is one of the kind of end points there and you can see why and again not through any fault of the films itself or even bogdanovich uh it, it's it and i can only imagine how much harder it was to view the film at the time in the wake of that but now it's it's easier to separate that. Like I said, the film is so genuine in its sense of love and romance that any of the dark, the dark cloud that hangs over it seems to dissipate. Particularly because uh, I I think surprisingly it's it's not very vainly driven as uh, in terms of its use of Dorothy Stratton. I I don't I don't even think she comes off especially well in the film. I think she's one of the weaker components <laughs> of it. I'm much more uh, compelled by uh, Patty Henson uh, as the the butch cab driver in the film. Uh, you want to get off? <laughs> <laughs> Got to reread my lines. <laughs> Sam. Yeah. No, I, I think she's really great. She gives a great performance. And I like the different dynamics there. One of the things uh, as well, again, like uh, that, that I tried to touch on with the film is that it's it's really a fantasy movie in terms of its uh, portrayal of love and romance. It's not a realistic portrait, particularly because it cuts itself loose from the consequences of like affairs or, you know, uh, you know, romantic playfulness or any kind of commitments to those uh, things, which mm -hmm. you, you could argue is, you know, kind of an uh, artifact of its uh, kind of male centric perspective there and the exploration of you know desires uh but really what it feels like is it feels like a genuine expression of those feelings and those desires and how romance makes one feel and so detaching itself from the realities of that makes the emotions resonate more strongly and more truthfully i feel like uh, again, you know, it, it takes place in this world where everyone's very understanding of relationships and how one interacts with one another. So a character like Ben Gazzara can, you know, romance or make out with three different women in the movie. 
and it doesn't necessarily create bitter feelings because it's you know all a kind of expression of his multitudinous love that he has for the various women uh that he comes across in uh within the film but it, also it, it really is polyamorous without consequences and that's interesting yeah yeah and again i i don't think in a negative way because it does frame everything as very fantastical it doesn't feel like these are real relationships these feel like expressions of relationships and that's what really resonated with me in the film it's a, it's a depiction of love and romance that i haven't seen in quite another form and part of the reason why the film has stuck in my mind uh for so many days as it has because uh, it really does feel like it has a unique and genuine perspective and it does feel very distinctly like Bogdanovich's perspective and Bogdanovich's kind of filmmaking it might you know I, I believe him when he says this is his most personal and favorite of his films hmm. then we get to one that has really been stuck in Mycroft for a while we got the the mask mask, mask. Yeah. yes mask uh which he made in uh 85 after another big reprieve yeah that's that's kind of the sad thing as well like he took he took a break from filming between nickelodeon and saint jack to get back on his feet and he mm -hmm. did then and then he's on this new trajectory boom he's got two films that are you know very creatively driven with saint jack and they all laughed and then just everything crumbles apart so he's got to put everything back together and he has mask basically come come to his doorstep here which um things i'm very interested in are disfigured and you know people who look different and are presented uniquely but with like a human spirit and they're given um their own agency and um drug addiction which is a, a very motivating thing in my life where i i look for that to be represented well in films i'm very touched when it has been yeah there when we're coming up because this is a film i'd seen prior uh, and I was like, I, I thought this one was going to resonate with you. When when we've been talking about our rankings before, this was one that I figured that you were going to like a good bit. Not just because it's a good movie. It's mm -hmm. definitely one of Bogdanovich's better respective films. But those two elements in particular are very much on your radar, very much of your interest. And I think elements the film executes very gracefully. Um, especially the, the drug addiction relationship. I think that one is of particular interest in, for me um, because the, the, the disfigured element of the story is treated uh, as almost a benign thing in that, you know, it establishes up front what the dynamic is, the malformation that Rocky Dennis has, and then it treats him as a normal kid throughout the rest of the film. You know, nobody gives him, you know, too many weird looks from, from thereafter. It's not an obstacle for him to overcome as much. Uh, much more attention is paid on the normal, everyday teenage boy trying to do teenage boy things throughout his life. And that, in, con in, in combination with his facial deformity um you know makes for a, a compelling story but it's not about how he has to overcome this like like prejudice against him you know and i think that it's very good very smart choice by the story not to make it about that but to make it about the kid himself the really beautiful thing i think it does is it combines like the outsider culture the uh bikes of uh, the the motorcycle gang that he becomes his mom becomes involved with and he kind of folds in there and he's he's no he's not much different than the guys in there like one of the guys in there can't even like speak 
and he feels like this camaraderie with these people who are just natural outsiders of society and that like that um intentional social structure really pays off for him and allows him to feel like one and whole with the group i mean it shouldn't be something that's constantly called out i think i i think it's good that the film doesn't alienate him and you know they say uh take out the mask when he gets to school and when he goes to the camp for the blind but uh I, right. I think it's good that it doesn't have to reckon with it. And he gets to be a character with actual agency with the family. Uh, he's missing a father figure. And a lot of that is fulfilled uh, within the biker squad and uh, in a steamy romance. What, one one, one <laughs> biker in particular. Yes. Yeah. Sam, Sam Elliott as, as the uh, kind of paternal figure for Rocky's life, who has insane uh, sexual chemistry with Cher. <laughs> Uh, oh boy, is is that some saucy relations there? Oh man, that's that that might be my favorite thing in the movie. <laughs> um, Sa- Sam Elliott and his mustache ride shirt. I think that's yeah. I mean, I don't even have a mustache. I I, I want that shirt. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I want to be wherever he is in life. I I want that like steaming sexual charisma. I think all men want to be Sam Elliott as oh, like, the, the lead of this biker gang who can I just say. Uh, Another film where uh, everyone's kind of polyamorous and it's not really judged, right? Like uh, these relationships they, in the biker community, they just kind of go in and out. They have each other's girl. They even offer uh, one of the girls to the guy, like, uh, give him a kiss. And she's like, oh, mm-hmm. no, no, I'm okay. Yeah, the the relationship there, again, it, there, there's a number of like overlapping relationships that are really compelling element of the film. Uh, you know, so the kind of on off again relationship with Cher and uh uh, Sam Elliott's uh, character there, uh, but uh, again, and, and how her drug addiction is kind of informed by their history and her involvement with the biker gang as well, and the struggle she has to overcome, and the tension that creates between her and her son, you know, mm-hmm. between Rocky, uh, and but but also like her, just her as an individual, how she's this bold person who has to kind of be defiant and be individualistic for the sake of not just herself for being you know beaten down by so many uh elements of her past and such you know but also for being a single mother and having to overcome those struggles but not just that but a single mother to a kid who is often prejudiced is the the you know early scene where you know she goes to enroll him in school and she basically just has to bark the principal down and, and tell him that you're going to enroll my son in school. He's a, you know, straight A student and top of his class. And, you know, you're not going to treat him any, you know, poorly because of this. And and she gives no quarter throughout. And it's really terrific. Uh, I, I love Shira's performance in this because she gets to be that bold bitch, but she also gets to be really emotional and sympathetic, uh, you know, particularly later scenes. Uh, she she really gives a tremendous performance here. I think when the mom of the kid tried to sell off the script or the the story, at least uh, she was like, I "Don't put me in it. Make it about the kid. It's not my story." But um, it's so much is when it's share. Um, she evokes so much that uh, the mom was uh, eventually just affectionate to her portrayal of of her and thought that it was so strong and such a good message. Uh, she also has to wear a kind of mask, which is like the drugs covering up like a all the pain she's been through and. Uh, trying to support this kid and his differences and of course eventually that that wears on a parent too so uh she's finding her own ways to cope and i think it, it handles that stuff very um very sweetly i think it's a very sweet movie and the universality plus the specificity is like a such a sweet balance there 
Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a special sweetness to the relationship that Rocky garners with uh, Laura Dern at the camp as well. Camp for the Blind that he ends up volunteering. This is like more than halfway through the film, this mm -hmm. dynamic crops up. But it's very well fleshed out, very well detailed. And like again, another case where you feel a real romance bloom between them. There's a nice scene they share mm -hmm. where he... Um, you know, he's he's trying to describe to her uh, what what colors are, and and he does so by like like giving her different stations like cold and hot. He's associating those with like blue and red, you know, and, and ideas. The the billowiness, I think, is uh, what it, what a cloud is. Yeah, he uses the right? cotton balls to like describe something she could never see, or um, you don't realize like when you're blind, you'd never, of course, see a cloud, and you would have no idea what kind of formation it is really sweet way and it's played off neatly by uh, Laura Dern who yeah. uh, really buys into it and she's like I see what you mean I see what the colors are I can feel them yeah she's really sweet and again I, I always want to praise someone who's who does a good job of playing blind in a movie because it's yeah. not just about like closing your eyes and you know like, mm -hmm. like acting like you can't see there's a real way to like going about it and and acting like you can't see and, and reacting to things you know based on sound and she does a really great job she gives a really good performance as a as a blind girl there and again a, a genuine relationship um you know and, the, and there's the the, the the dynamic there that kind of crops up at the end with the, the family when they yeah. come pick her up and they see rocky and and uh are entirely put off and and like intentionally try and hide her away from him mm -hmm. uh but but they they managed to come together despite that and yeah really a, sweet a relationship yeah there's also again, that uh, that thing where it's in conversation with like uh the elephant man and then we had this and then we had blue velvet with laura dern so i'm hoping these films are all in conversation with each other and that david lynch also likes this movie mm -hmm. i think most anyone would like this movie again it's it's a it's a really accessible like you know kind of uh sweet bittersweet movie you know good good drama good you know comedy though still too you know just really moving uh the first time i watched it uh, i remember my, my ending sentiment was this is a movie my mom would love my mom would love this movie and i think it's a movie that i would love um i i do love it i i think our reservation about it is that like any very prolific and experienced director can maybe make this with the right studio notes and yeah it is like that handshake between commercialism and artistry where uh, it is attainable by multiple artists and it's not, it's not quite the most bogdanovich movie no it's by far the most commercial film he he made uh it, it lacks a lot of his distinctive voice and well, it treats a lot of these harder elements you know the the biker gang the drug addiction is very quaint you know they're all part of the sweetly formula here um but you know it all still works really well you know and it's you know it, it's still really saleable um you know, for for all of those uh, aspects, you know, just because it's commercial doesn't mean that it's not still appealing. If anything, that's exactly what it means. And we both watched the Superior version, which is a 2004 cut he did with the Bruce Springsteen songs. Worth noting yeah. that. Yeah, and, and, and another thing that comes up with a lot of these Bogdanovich films, as we talked about last episode as well, with films like Long Last Love and with like Nickelodeon, is that there were a lot of compromises in Bogdanovich's career, and it took him many, many years to rectify a lot of them. And in the case of Mask, it was the soundtrack because he did have final cut of the, of the film otherwise. Um, he, he got an agreement with Bruce Springsteen to use his music for the film. He, uh, uh, they were Bruce Springsteen was one of the real Rocky Dennis's favorite artists, so he wanted to use that. Uh, particularly, and, and, and Bogdanovich became attached to the music very 
you know, specifically, uh, he went to a Springsteen concert, you know, and uh, was really moved by Springsteen's music. He said at one point when he was listening to like music in the car, uh, when Badlands came on, he had to pull over because he just he burst into tears. It was so beautiful. And that was the song he knew he had to use over the the ending music. The promised Land, you mean the yeah, Promised Land. Yeah, Sorry, Promised Land. Land. Prom- yeah. And and it is so specific to Rocky. Like it it does something so emotionally powerful at the end there. Like we're looking at like sense of place and Rocky's um dreams of going to Europe and riding motorcycles with his friend, which all get gets but abandoned when he his friend moves to Michigan. But um still we're looking at like what his promised land would be and what his heaven would be and his mom going and uh, putting the pins back in the map. I feel like crying, even uh, describing it uh, for a second time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I love that, that part of it and her reaction to his death at the end is just so special and, and sad. Heartbreaking, just utterly uh, uh, eviscerating emotionally. Cher again, stunning performance, beautiful performance. Of Cher. Cher's a really good actor when she wants to be. Yeah, yeah. When she's directed, she could do really extraordinary things. Uh, Bogdanovich said in interviews that he used more close-ups for Cher than he ever did for anyone else in his movies because she couldn't sustain takes for very long. She, she said, <laughs> he said she looked great in a close-up though because she has sad eyes. That's what he always said. She plays the addiction well with the sad eyes too. Uh, you feel that like gravity of loss and yeah, that eternal uh, destruction. She's, she's really magnetic, but not so much that she overpowers the other performances. Eric Stoltz is really great through all mm. through all the makeup. You know, he gives a really great performance there. Um, you know, Laura Dern, you know, as we said, and um, you know, there's other people around, like you know, in the biker gang and such that are that are really nice. Harry Carey Jr. is one of the standout biker members. I, I know I, I kind of recognize him there. I guess if you haven't seen it, he has Lionitis, which is just like extended cramium, like his head keeps growing. Um, as he ages and uh, if if i remember right it's like it's the calcium in in his skull builds up yeah something like that it's terrible obviously yeah and uh it's it's a it's a death sentence <laughs> yeah because uh his head just keeps growing and getting larger and um struggling with that and i think the film does interesting things about how he perseveres through that through his relationship with his friend ben i think his name was but um uh, uh, also, like the trading cards and like the Americanism of like Bruce Springsteen allowing him to honor his favorite artist better than getting Bob Seger to do something the guy yeah, actually yes. liked. So, um, so getting back to the the point there, the the compromise, the studio uh, could not broker a deal with the uh, record company, and so they ended up just replacing all the Bruce Springsteen movie uh, music with Bob Seger and Bogdanovich just flipped his shit and sued stu- <laughs> the studio. Against everyone's suggestion, nobody. What do you think Bob Seger thinks of this? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he might not I, care. He might understand. I, yeah, I know. I know Bogdanovich had no ill will towards Bob Seger. It's just he didn't want to compromise his vision, and he you have a vision. Explicitly yeah. picked those those songs again. They were and they were very motivated choices, and he he got the sign off from Springsteen even. So you know, and again, again just a, a, an extension of him not wanting to compromise as he had before and and you know erode his integrity and still dealing with all the turmoil of you know the aftermath of of dorothy's death and everything and just continuing to make poor decisions after poor decisions and this this was about the time he went and had to declare bankruptcy so well i mean you can't imagine the film now i think uh you you gotta watch this cut that we watch because it starts with springsteen and it ends with him I don't even know if you can find the seeker cut. I, I, I have not. no idea where it is. Again, like, <laughs> it. 
if if you can find the film to begin with, it's very hard to find. Like, mm-hmm. like a lot of them, the, the distribution just isn't necessarily there. Streaming service, you can't watch this on a streaming service. You're gonna have to go find a DVD of it or an online rip. Uh, I I waited two years to see the movie. I um because uh, I I got on the wait list for the library, you know, to rent for there. And for two years, I sat on that wait list waiting for it to just eventually come. <laughs> And eventually it, it, it did. And that's when I watched it. <laughs> so it, hopefully it doesn't take you listeners two years to see Mask because yeah. it's very much worth seeking out. As another note, we're going to be going to Scarecrow and renting uh, uh, one of our selections. So please don't rent any Bogdanovich films for the next month. Um, <laughs> wait, wait until we're done the retrospective, and then you and the, then you can also listen and you can pick out which ones are actually worth renting. Mask worth renting the saintly switch probably let's we'll see let's saintly speaking switch to a, the next yeah. film <laughs> speaking of saintly switches how about uh illegally yours yeah yeah that's our our next film here which was one we watched together another director for higher job like mask uh not successful though uh not as, uh, not as bad as it's poster eh yeah this this film uh Again, also not a whole lot out there about it because people don't want to talk about it. Particularly Bogdanovich didn't want to talk about it. Uh, in one of the interviews I watched with him, uh, as soon as it was brought up, he said, that's not my movie. I don't know whose movie that was, but it's it's not mine. Presumably, <laughs> yeah. this is the studio's movie. And yeah. Is. Yeah. As, as I said in the uh, intro there, uh, this was a Dino De Laurentiis produced film. And uh, Dino De Laurentiis is... Pretty infamous producer uh, in some regards. Uh, definitely likes to put his hands on things. He's an active producer. And uh, he sure put his hands on this one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll he, say. Yeah. Let's see. He uh, Bogdanovich claims that he asked for a rewrite just like several days before principal photography was supposed to begin. And then he went to the editing room and cut it up a bunch and changed a lot of things. And uh, it shows. But... Mm. Unlike how it's purported and the way Bogdanovich just all but disowns it, uh, it's not quite a complete train wreck. (laughs) I think the worst case result of it is that it's a very mediocre, middle of the line uh, rom-com that blends like uh, typified 80s rom-com with, uh, you know, bits and pieces of things Bogdanovich like, but not the whole picture. You know, there's probably some John Hughes films that have aged worse than this. (laughs) Yes. I think so. Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised to discover that, but like u- ultimately this isn't like overtly offensive. It's not even like poorly made from a directorial standpoint. If anything, uh it's a stronger case for Bogdanovich's directorial voice than even like Mask is. You you can see oh. the Bogdanovich trademarks come out a bit more in yeah. terms of the the comic direction particularly. It's still got that peerless uh wit in terms of dialogue exchanges. Uh, there's lots of pratfalls still that are well executed, uh, but it doesn't cohere into something satisfying because the script is just such a jumbled mess. And we have the um, repetition of mask. We have uh, cassette tapes. Uh, Bowie is switched out with the Springsteen commentary that um, Bogdanovich yeah. would soon replace his uh, soundtrack with Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's... Yeah, it is like a lot of pratfalls that don't go places. I mean, they're kind of funny in the moment, but I... Uh, 
I, I like a lot of elements of the film, and that's what's kind of disappointing about it. I think Rob Lowe is really good. He's he's really committed to giving a you know quirky kind of offbeat performance here, mm-hmm. is largely succeeding at at you know uh, salvaging something here. I like the premise, just kind of like inherently of this like you know this uh, you know college kid rolls back into his hometown uh, and just gets swept up into jury duty one day and ends <laughs> up like wanting to to rescue the his first grade crush from a murder rap <laughs> and just we both, uh, we both discussed jury duty seemed like it would be such a thing in these old movies and never yeah. really happened to us it come it comes up a lot more in the movies than it does in real life uh which is odd <laughs> yeah but uh, it's a good premise i think and and definitely has promise for good screwball antics but uh and it even has a couple i guess um none i could name off the top of my head but uh, it's it's enough to be enjoyable. Uh, I guess there was the glasses gag. We, we the glasses about gag we both like, where he's carrying yeah. around and holding up the glasses, which isn't featured on the poster. <laughs> they remove his glasses, which is glasses erasure, David. Yeah, yeah. Which is again just uh, cynical marketing decisions, <laughs> which is terrible. The original poster, Rob Lowe, very clearly wearing his glasses, and subsequent DVD releases and you know streaming uh, representations. Uh, same poster, same imagery, same pose, same facial expression, no glasses. I understand, though. I, the way I know Rob Lowe is wearing nothing in uh, Young Blood, so I understand the moving. <laughs> Not, nothing at all. They should have taken his shirt off then, too. I think he has like a gag where his towel falls down in this hockey movie that I, I really oh, like. Uh, that Rob Lowe rem- with his abs. You um, did remind me, though, of a dumb gag. Well, one of the dumber <laughs> gags, which is him, which is Rob Lowe dressed in, in like a bathrobe. And like, <laughs> yeah. and 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 he finds himself in the judge's house, and like he's he's got to like avoid her. And there's like there's this weird like implication. It's never explicit, but like this weird implication that the the judge is like horny or, yeah. or, or like turned on by his wife, who's Keeps actually Rob Lowe, her, her bunny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredibly uncomfortable and not funny. And the laughter that you're giving me here, Cal, is like awkward laughter and remembering it, I can tell. <laughs> and and me trying to recall it. But yeah, yeah like, that's Rob Lowe like bent over into the fridge and hit and the judge like slapping his ass. It's I mean it's not, you know, it's a little strange. Yeah, it's that that's probably the worst comic scene in the movie from my recollection but there are really good moments again throughout too uh and it's like uh, he keeps wrecking his cars and then the um the tow truck driver kind of gets folded into his house and yeah tow uh, truck driver again board. played played by harry carey jr again harry who's carey just jr. Very pretty good. pretty delightful pretty bubbly presence throughout i lo- again i and i like in the same sense of like an old hollywood film where you see like these character actors just popping up consistently in a director's work. You know, he's got this rotating crew of people, Harry Carey Jr. being one of them comes up a number of times. So it's nice to see him here, but it's, it's really just like a really marred script, uh, but in a way that doesn't feel like it's Bogdanovich's fault, particularly because he didn't have a hand in the script. And that's probably mistake number one. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a huge reason why what's up doc is such a sensational success. You know, it's his yeah. idea there, but that was also part, partly a lot of that success is he had someone like Buck Henry writing the script for that too. And you don't have anyone like that here. <laughs> and uh, you, you had a whole rewrite before shooting the movie again. Uh, and you feel it, you feel the rewrite and you feel the lack of Bogdanovich voice, especially in the start when it's, it's so much voiceover in this movie. Like it yeah. clips, we watched it together, thankfully to get through some of this, but uh, every 
four or five minutes, it's Roblo like dictating what's happening because the scenes don't really piece it together in a satisfying way and it doesn't trust the audience to figure it out. He yeah, so there's like there's a whole intro sequence that you could just chop right off the front of the movie, just then like the, a bunch of context. Like, the like, intro after the intro is good. Yeah, yeah. The so, so there's a whole like lead up uh like like context for what the murder is or whatever going on that mm-hmm. ultimately is superfluous and doesn't matter because we're right. not invested in the murder anyway and it's so like detail ridden and then there's the voiceover over it which is just excessively detailed with a bunch of inane bullshit and it all feels like post-production notes and you could very easily just remove all of that and just start it at the, the title sequence which is a lot of like silent comedy get basically all physical gags set to you know Rob Lowe like returning home uh over uh, a Johnny Cash song as the you know for the music which was uh, a song uh that Bogdanovich wrote as well which is really cool it's a good it's song. called called love is a gambler uh which is really good super catchy I've been listening to it a lot the past couple days he also wrote the the song for um a couple other songs in the movie that Cash sings and one of the country songs uh for they all laughed as well so that was a big thing if anything from this uh journey i've learned walking away is that bogdanovich also had some songwriting credits which is really cool that's a cool discovery yeah it's cool that his voice gets through in some of the writing in the movie somewhere yeah that's Um, it though just in that just in that bitchin country title song yeah that johnny cash song there's also this feeling that um we needed like a meet cute or like a we need an establishing relationship beyond yeah i knew this girl in first grade like that's not information for the audience that's very expository we need something show us show us some chemistry uh before the end of the movie please it takes yeah it takes a really 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 long time for that dynamic that romantic dynamic to actually come to fruition and even after they meet like he absconds with her from the courtroom like an hour into the movie it takes probably another 15 minutes for him to actually like introduce himself explain why he's doing what he's doing you know to have that development of that dynamic and then for a romance to start to like actually blossom from that Mm -hmm. like their feelings to actually kind of manifest a bit more so you can work your way up to the happy ending it takes a good while for that to happen very deep into the picture and that should have happened much much earlier uh, again, just kind of structurally a whole mess. There's these these kind of cartoonish villain stuff going on, but again, of of little consequence. I don't care why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, uh, it doesn't doesn't matter. It, it and so despite the very good direction, despite Bogdanovich really trying to make a good movie here, despite everyone involved, you know, Rob Lowe giving a great performance. You know, a good um, performance. I'd say I wouldn't say it's like an all time great. Like no, no, in no. A but he's movie or yeah. But yeah. he's doing good. He's working with the material. He's, he's supplying. Yeah. yeah, he's supplying a compelling, you know, leading man comic performance. You know, this is exactly what I would expect out of a '80s Rob Lowe comedy film. Like, I like when he trips up the stairs both times. He says the same thing. I forget the exact line, but I like that he has the same expression. Like something like, "Oh, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm very yeah. smooth. I'm a, di- I'm a dynamo." Is what he says. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> both times he trips up the stairs. There's really. There's components in everything here that that are good and that you want to like, which makes its failure all the more sad. Again, more than anything, I feel sad for the movie. I feel sad for what it's not able to accomplish. It's just so mid. It's so mediocre that I just don't I don't feel anything. actually. Yeah. And and it doesn't feel mediocre as a fault of its filmmaker. It feels like it was compromised. And that's that's the the worst. Yeah. Uh, And you just want it to be better. 
you can find things to like, but nothing to recommend. You know, that's well, and that's the rough thing. It would it would almost be more interesting if it were a dumpster fire, but it's not. Uh, sorry to inform you, it's just mediocre. At long last pod, we have uh, Texasville, maybe a film that should have been compromised, wouldn't you say? I mean, it already kind of was. Uh, again, another film that Bogdanovich uh, had a longer cut of, uh, but was not released as such. You say and it's only available on like laser laser disc. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it, he was able to construct the twenty five extra minutes onto a print for laser disc release. I think a Criterion release, but don't quote oh. me on that. Uh, and but maybe there's hope. But it, but never never after that. I I know it was shown in like a film print as well. He, he talks about like it was screened and it played well with the extra twenty five minutes. Um, but yeah, yeah, not not even we could hunt down a, a version <laughs> this this extra twenty five minute version. I, We're just stuck with the two hour version. I'd like a I'd like a version with twenty five minute less. Actually, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, for me, when I watched it, even I, it was a case where uh, I was like, this movie feels like. It's, it's, it feels its length it's too long but at the same time it i feel like it does need those extra you know half hour or whatever to flesh out more because it has a lot and that's the problem i think taking away from it uh wouldn't erase those like you know relationships those dynamics that uh aren't as well executed but in, like, in this current uh, version like orson well said no podcast recording should be more than two hours <laughs> I uh, I think it's uh, I mean it's serviceable. I don't I don't hate anything. Again, it's so middle of the road, and uh, it doesn't. But, it is a direct sequel to Last Picture Show. Don't watch this if you've never seen yeah, Last that's, Picture Show. That's that's the big thing is that if you've not seen Last Picture Show, I have no idea what you would think <laughs> of this movie. Uh, Nothing. I don't I don't know what you'd get out of it. Possibly, so much right? so much of it is really like predicated on the foundation of the relationships and the dynamics that are established in last picture show and the history there. And like the, the film doesn't go out of its way to like, then reinform you about all of that, despite, you know, existing 16 years after the fact. And I'm sure some of its lack of success, some of its failure at the box office had to do with the fact that there was a whole generation of moviegoers who, have never seen last picture show uh, which wasn't probably available at the time of this release no no, no you think you think shit was any more available in 1990 <laughs> on home video than it was here of course it wasn't <laughs> and now this one not very available either another one that's hard to find uh yeah not quite as hard to find as something like mask i'd say i've got an easier time finding this uh but uh, and not in the version that Bogdanovich wanted. So, you know, how available is it? Uh, right. But this, despite that, I, it's got promise. It's got compelling elements. Um, it has a lot of ideas. So. Yeah, again, I like the idea of picking up where Last Picture Show left off with its, you know, themes and its subjects and examining youth and applying that to, you know, the the adults in, in middle age and middle of midlife crisis, you know, and then you've you've got the compelling forces of, uh, Jeff Bridges and Civil Shepherd still, you know, in the center here. You got like um, Eileen Brennan and uh, Cloris Leachman returning supporting mm -hmm. capacities, who are always enjoyable. They're there in you know more auxiliary roles, but they're there. Um, and and you you've got a lot of those same sentiments there, but it's lacking some of the most distinctive qualities of Last Picture Show. And it can't again, it can't help but draw a comparison because it's same characters, sequel, same yeah. area, so, like literally direct follow up to everything there. Uh, 
it it doesn't have the same mood or atmosphere or level of angst that Last Picture Show does. Last Picture Show is a haunting film, a beautiful film, uh, in, in its exploration of you know those ideas, and you know it, it lacks the sense of setting, especially setting. I think was probably the biggest thing I felt like I was missing in Texas, Phil, uh, because the setting of Last Picture Show, that desolate, bleak Texas town is is such a character in and of itself in last picture show and it it's feels so, like it really weighs in on weighs on every character there and it, it, yeah it's so transitory now it feels like it's exploring like a whole county a, a whole yeah larger no, I, place but I without get no, defining it i get no sense of where texasville even takes place texas, you know i think it takes place in texas it it, it it presumably is about the this town's centennial yeah um but I don't even get a sense of the place of the town. There's there's no familiarity of the locales, and there's so much traversing. It feels so expansive in its geography, even that you never get a sense of place, which is the most harmful thing about the film, I think. Um, but there's other things too. Uh, I hate Jeff Bridges' uh, like terrible demeanor as a father and his shitty kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his, his son is a cartoonish philanderer who impregnates uh, every woman in town um, in, a, in a just strictly unbelievable way. <laughs> our fourth movie today with polyamory as a subject. Yeah. I guess it's, the only part in Illegal Years is that the mom sleeps with the cop and the tow truck driver. I don't know if there's more than that. Is she sleeping with the tow truck driver? Is she, I felt like it was implied that he was going to be staying for a while. but. Uh, Staying for, I don't, I didn't get the explicit implication. She just likes sexual. giving him room and board. Okay, there's no polyamory in illegal years. The studios ruined my link. <laughs> there's you that weird. Made it happen. You, you bring that up though. You do remind me of that weird dynamic with the cop. They set up up front only for it to finally come up like an hour later. Like <laughs> yeah. he disappears for like an hour in the movie, and he finally shows up again. I kind of would have been more proud of the movie if it just dropped the cop like it yeah. made a note of introducing him and then he just whoosh, just disappeared from the movie <laughs> i really wonder what those original notes were uh this doesn't seem so much compromised this seems pretty close to whatever a novelistic yeah, uh, yeah. sequel to you said there are other sequels you have some yeah. of the names uh at least one of them yeah i can i can pull it up again here so texasville was the second novel larry mcmurtry wrote um in his uh, series um, of the last picture show books. Uh, yeah. What's the, it's called the Dwayne Moore series. <laughs> and so uh, I'll, I'll read them off here. So that he wrote that one in 87 Texasville mm -hmm. in 1999. He wrote the next film Dwayne's depressed. What? That's why there was never a movie <laughs> made. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, when I like that idea of Bogdanovich making the follow-up, you know, making, ha having made last picture so show such a sensation i like that he and all of the you know crew returned uh one thing i, I also know wanted to note uh that i didn't in our last recording so maybe it was good that we didn't record that to begin with here <laughs> was that the uh the cinematographer for texas phil is nicholas joseph von sternberg who is the famous joseph von sternberg hollywood director you know uh emigre uh yeah filmmaker son it's his son that's the only thing of note uh he doesn't have a particularly exemplary filmography outside of that and the cinematography in texasville is pretty basic yeah it's 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 nothing exemplary but it was shot by a guy who's the son of a famous you know cinematographer and director and that was interesting 
um, the the last two novels, by the way, called When the Light Goes and the best name yet, Rhino Ranch. I yeah, want to make Ry- that movie. Rhino Ranch, good name that feels like it fits in with Last Picture Show in Texasville. I can't tell you what the strand is, what, what connects these names oh, together, it's but the... I like those three. And Dwayne's Depress is a terrible novel. I would never pick up that novel. And When the Light Goes is very generic. The, very bland. Uh, it doesn't tell the me problem anything. I have is that it's called the Thyla Trilogy book five once you get to once you get to rhino ranch i feel like it's not a trilogy anymore let's be more honest with our with our titling but yeah texasville and last picture show those are okay names those are good names mm-hmm. yeah but uh texasville itself uh, as a movie ah it, it it feels like it's has the potential to be something really good and i feel like it could have been really good for the audience at the time if it had yeah. been supported like especially for such a film that was a sensation in 71 making a follow-up with all these people all the years later you know it, it feels like if the audience was there for it it could have been really successful but and it he, also seems like a film that the studio wasn't willing to support and was willing I, to write off i kind of need movies to speak for themselves though i can't have like these closed sequels where it's just unapproachable and nobody could really even come into it um yeah i you, want you, films to be for an audience too yeah and that and that's like kind of also the big thing here, you know, is that you really I, I feel like you would be lost uh, if you did not know Last Picture Show in any capacity. Uh, I already feel a little lost, a little uninvested, even with all the Last Picture Show knowledge and awareness. Um, but like just certain things like the, the impact of like Sonny's schizophrenia. Um, yeah. I don't feel like that would have the same impact, uh, especially with with Cloris Leachman, you know, expressing her sympathy for it. If you didn't have the context of their relationship as, as a big, I mean, as a major component of the first film. Weirdly, it almost needs to be a mini series or something more expanded. I, I think that could work. Like a, it would have to be like after Twin Peaks though, to really work. I think because that like that change in format and what shows could be that would have been essential. But um. Yeah, I feel like there's too much there almost for what it is. It's again, it's it's too much or it's not enough. It feels like it could use yeah. <laughs> more time to flesh out things. It's it's caught in that weird middle where it's like it's it's definitely like uh, uh, too many disparate strands, you know, that don't measure up to a whole lot. Uh, but to a point where it's like you, you can tell there's more to be said there with those. So maybe it needs more time or uh, otherwise you're just like, well, there's like a half hour here that I just don't want to watch. I'm not engaged in, you know, as it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's interesting the way that it's um, bringing back like his, his glory days and he's like on the float or whatever. There's the rodeo thing. And yeah, you I just can't I like, live up to what you used to be. I like that main relationship. I like that main component. And I, if the film was able to focus more on that, I feel like it could be really successful. Because uh, Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepherd are really great together in the movie. They've got a great dynamic. I think following Dwayne's like kind of crumble into midlife crisis, I think that's a, a really compelling aspect to hook on. It's a good idea. Yeah. I, I just don't think it follows through quite enough. It's, it doesn't make good on that. It's not quite as successful as it could be, but it has interesting components to it. And like I said, so again, it's another case where it's like film could be a success. It, it just ultimately isn't. And, and that one unlike in the case of Illegally Yours, I do feel like it's more on Bogdanovich's behalf. I do think this is directorially a, a little worse off than other uh, other works of his. I think they just needed more 
town meetings, honestly. I think we need to have a town <laughs> meeting. I think we need to convene for the second time today and put these in their rightful Bogdana ranks. Bogdana, all right. Uh, let's let's get into it. I'm excited to see how this will shake out. Uh, I know, we've just done this. So um, uh, should I read the list for uh, yeah. people who are listening that are yeah. us? Yeah, um, the, the unranked list. Yeah, uh, the unranked list, it will be What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, St. Jack, The Last Picture Show at Long Last Love, Nickelodeon, Daisy Miller, and Targets. Um, let's place, uh, they all laugh first, I suppose, uh, if we really um, want to do that. Okay. Well, and so then we'll uh, after we that. do that, we'll place the next one, then we'll come back and change where this one goes. Okay. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> so, so, so they all laughed. Um for, for for me, I I really vibe on it and love its affection, you know, its sincerity so much. It's not quite as crisp as Paper Moon, but but definitely has something more to cling on to than Saint Jack per se, which again has a similar energy to it, but just a little more, you know, lost in terms of its 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 goal, you know, its themes or whatever. Uh so I I like it a bit more than Saint Jack. I want to put it above Saint Jack and below Paper Moon. How about between St. Jack and the last picture show. <laughs> all all no. right. You, okay. you put up you put up a fight. I guess I'll capitulate and we'll come, you know, I'll, I'll deal with that since, you're so, that. since you fought so hard for St. Jack above. <laughs> Let's just uh, get ahead of our problem here. What if we make a deal? What if I let you have your placement of um, They All Laughed Above St. Jack, which is a better movie, uh, but, but I get into your feelings. I allow you to uh, explore how you really feel in this podcast and we get to uh rank your movie there if you give me mask in third place what how would you, know you feel what? about that i think that's that's a totally fair compromise because that's how i would have felt anyway so yeah really yeah yeah, yeah. okay As you say uh, with feigned surprise <laughs> i'm just surprised that you really feel that way um i do uh, it was because... such an argument the first time that uh... <laughs> the thing the thing was is that as much as they all laughed feels like the very personal very sincere very pointedly bogdanovich film more so uh, and how mask feels very more commercial and more like any filmmaker could have made it's such a an enrapturing story and so well done still you know with, with so few issues to it you know so to speak again like the only real acknowledgeable points is that you know it's a little sweet for how hard everything is but that's also a strength of it you know so yeah, I, I love that despite it lacking a bit more of an individual flair, it is such a compelling and emotionally strong film. Uh, so compelling and so universal, too. Again, this is a film that very easily you could recommend to everybody. I can't oh, imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine a single person I would not necessarily recommend this to or who couldn't find some enjoyment in it. My wife trying to watch it a second time, but uh, we discussed <laughs> that we don't we don't know. Um... We don't know. It's why. hard. It's hard. Hard to pin down your wife's taste. My wife's yes. easy. It's just the same as mine. Yeah, you guys have the same outcome on any film. So there's some I'm really surprised by where I'm like way off. I'm like, really? They both thought the, the exact same thing. Interesting. I guess sometimes, when you're in the room, sometimes and, we're a little different. I guess when your your taste like develops with someone, you see all the same movies. Naturally, you might align closer eventually. Yeah, yeah, pretty closely. Uh, and but we also tend to exchange thoughts then, and then so we kind of then adopt each other's. Uh, I'll say though, at least for this round, uh, I did like they all laughed a bit more than she did. I uh, again, I connected okay. those those components of expression. Uh, I think she felt a little closer to you than me on it, but 
you know, I, I mounted a similarly strong defense of it as I did here with her. So I think she's, well, she's very understanding. Would you want to mount your defense of illegally yours? <laughs> no, uh, uh, you know, I've done my best to to state what it is here. Uh, again, not a dumpster fire, not a total disaster, trash mess, uh, just really mediocre in, in a really sad and compromised way. Uh, so much so that it, it really can't be anywhere than the bottom, uh, which is unfortunate. I, I think Bogdanovich was right in his assessment of the film, but again, through no fault of his own. Yeah, I think we might even slide Texas Phil up above it and just say that's the, the most yeah. compromised studio version of Bogdanovich <laughs> is illegally yours. Yeah, uh, I, I think I said on my own, I think I liked Daisy Miller less than uh, Texasville personally, but you, you found more in it than I did, certainly, uh, which, and so I'm fine continuing to keep it at the spot it's in, but definitely uh, where where we want to put it here, put Texasville below Targets. Targets fulfills a bit more of its thematic promises than I'm Texasville not, does. I'm not a Last Picture Show fan per se, so like the sequel to that that relies on that movie also doesn't fascinate me. I, I think it's very middling at the very but, least. But I think what Texasville does do is it reminds you of the really great elements of Last Picture Show that maybe we we don't appreciate as much as we could here. <sighs> Again, uh, we're, we're pretty anti-last picture show here in terms of like at, at least like deflating its you know grandeur a bit not that we don't like the movie but i like the first half of it and i like the ending um <laughs> there's a lot of time in between that i don't love the last picture show yeah but but texasville is uh it, it doesn't even have the great aspects of it it's it's just pretty middling yeah. again it's it's fine enough but like it's it's it literally like a kind of thing where like uh something i would do to waste two hours with not something i would return to again and by, by any means i would probably watch illegally yours before it even though it's a worse movie because it's yeah. a shorter movie <laughs> it's easier to get through it's uh one you want to go through our ranking again when we yep. read it yeah yeah now that we got it locked in for a second time what's up doc paper moon mask they all laughed saint jack the last picture show at long last love nickelodeon Daisy Miller targets Texasville and illegally yours. I think I that's good. A, yeah, that's very solid. I think that reflects what we were thinking quite well. Yeah. Uh, both times. <laughs> yeah. I think we were more efficient this time. So maybe you got the more efficient version of our podcast where we didn't Pro- meander. Probably. I, th- I think we much. cut the fluff. We cut the fluff a bit this time. Maybe this is how we should do it going forward. We'll just <laughs> we'll record an episode. We will not record an episode the first time. And then we'll go in again and just say the best bits, you know, like we did this time. And, you know, it'll be a bit more condensed, a little shorter, more enjoyable for the audience. Twice as much work for us, but, you know, better listening experience for them. If you want to hear more of me uh, somehow this week, you want to check out uh, Exiting Through the 2010s, where I give a, where I mount a defense of uh, Under the Skin as the magnum opus of the entire last decade, which I genuinely feel as Miko Levy's score is uh, the best I've ever heard. Have you heard of a under the skin <laughs> have i yeah yeah all the time yeah have you heard of it today <laughs> have couple, you heard of miko levy has been brought to your attention at least three thousand times by now i believe um, i'm pretty sure i'm surprised this hasn't become the miko levy podcast yet that's a good idea um <laughs> maybe we rank the miko levy movies that's a good idea we could go through under the skin and uh that movie about the sacred cow if we're gonna um, do if we're gonna do composers, can we also throw in like Tangerine Dream while we're at it? Or, yeah, that would be fun. Like again, like like 
short enough ones like that we can tackle in, in reasonable portions like very excited still to be covering bogdanovich but man like almost 30 films it's a lot yeah <laughs> we're, we're still in for a little bit here uh miku levy's but, only done like four or five movies i think we yeah, can do see, that zola i wouldn't recommend that so. yeah but again like the harder thing with you know contemporary people people were still working because then they can obsolete our our, our coverages we'll just doesn't keep mean, coming doesn't back. mean we won't do them yeah. you know we we did it with bigelow already so yeah i mean we'll come back to anything bigelow makes but we might not make that same deal if we do like a composer series uh if we do a director series i'm pretty intent on coming back and doing solo episodes on their work but yeah but It'll like a composer out. we don't have to go do every movie again i get it it doesn't have to be directors or composers exclusively it could be actors it could be you know characters maybe we did like a series like it was like let's do all the sherlock holmes movies or some shit i don't know yeah we can do whatever we want it's our podcast i also appeared on critically optimistic the uh, show with our friend mac and jenko and we did uh twins with the dearly departed ivan reitman's movie with uh, arnold schwarzenegger and uh oh was that an ivan Danny reitman film? wow wow that's yeah. really timely i think you guys killed ivan reitman i know because we we talked about triplets his new movie that included tracy morgan and I said that would be a good idea. I think he fell over in shock. Sorry to the family, but also uh, I haven't seen that new Ghostbusters. Maybe I need to go make make amends and go support that. There's there's a there's a tasteless joke here about Ivan Reitman and Ghostbusters Afterlife, and I'm not going <laughs> to oh, make it. <laughs> I think you oh, just did. <laughs> no, no, no. That's up to the listeners to fill in the blanks if they want. I didn't do anything. Okay. <laughs> I'm also on, um, I'm thinking of spoiling things. I'm on for Licorice Pizza, uh, which is a very exciting thing. Just stay I, tuned for the absolute yeah. chaos at the end of that show. I hear, I hear the ending spins out of control. I was saving it for, for tomorrow to listen to. Please uh, do. So I, I will be sure. I Yeah, appar- <laughs> apparently there's 10, 10 minutes after it's supposed <laughs> to wrap up. So yeah, keep, keep in tune for that. It'll be interesting. It gets a little surreal. Um, we also have the Daydream <laughs> cast returning with Brogan and Murph, a uh, new uh, co-host, new permanent co-host. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah, they're covering Epic Mickey, which was very interesting to, to hear about. Again, another yeah. film with lots of interesting like production history, you know, kind yeah. of behind the scenes stuff going on. And like Warren Spector wanted so much, and that's another thing. Studio control of video games kind of fucking up directors. Uh Warren Spector, you'll know from like the Deus Ex uh, series. So mm-hmm. he has very good credentials. It was, it was a very good episode. Very happy to have them back. Return to the kind of video game content we love hearing about. So uh, great chemistry still between Brogan and uh, Murph there. So excited to hear more from them in the future. So I did hear about Dark Souls every week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did it again. I think we've come to the end of another fine uh, podcast. There are a lot of reviews up on the site and stay tuned to us for more uh, conversations on classic and contemporary video games. Stay fresh. <laughs> Stay fresh. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I really appreciate that you took the time to hear what I had to say. Oh, thank you for listening to my podcast. You have millions of choices. my conversations and i post them online for entertainment it's nice to know at least you listen
into the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world. Things have changed. Everybody's entertaining. Who's being entertained? Thank you for listening to my Yeah.